Good afternoon. It is a sunny Friday here in Tampa, Florida, which we can say about 335 days out of the year, and it is uh, my pleasure. Oh, did I say it's Friday, January 25th, 2013, and uh we have a repeat performance today, and I am so excited to welcome back uh, our guest, Kelly McDonald. And Kelly was on about a year ago, and we were talking about how to market to people that are not like you. And today it's a, a, a very, very similar topic with just a little bit different twist toward customer service. So it's called Crafting the Customer Experience for People Not Like You, How to Delight and Engage the customers your competitors don't understand. Kelly, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me back. I'm so excited to be here again. Well, it's great, and I, I just so love this topic. And as we were talking about before we went on the air, uh, when I interviewed you the first time, uh, you know, the, the book topic resonated with me because, you know, so often we are trying to market to people who aren't like us. And, and right. it's so easy to fall into that trap of thinking that everybody is like you. And and crafting the customer experience, you know, is is uh, really more than just customer service. I didn't mean to put you just into that that box. It's about the whole end-to-end customer experience. But, uh, you know, again, it's it's really really tough to get out of our own way on this kind of thing. So I'm so glad uh that you wrote this book and and I do want to tell our listeners and I'm so proud of you. Uh, for what you've accomplished with this book. And I I know how very, very hard this is, but you have been recognized by Forbes, Bloomberg, and Fast Company. I mean, if you had to lay out who you wanted to pay attention to to a book, (laughs) they would be on the head of the list. So congratulations. Thank you. I I feel the same way. It was like when I got those endorsements from those business publications, I was like, okay, um, it doesn't get much better than that. I can't ask for more. (laughs) No, no. Well, you know, we are in just such an interesting time, and and the the whole one size uh, fits all approach just really isn't applicable any any longer. And and so many companies are are just still stuck in delivering both products and services in the same way that they always have. Uh, and yep. with the changing demographics and and really some surprising. Uh, generational shifts that that uh, I know in my own industry, where I'm in the travel industry, and uh, the younger people are using travel agents again. You know, we thought it was only uh, you know the seniors and the boomers who who felt comfortable picking up the phone and, or sitting across from somebody. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Why are they doing that? Uh, because their time is more important. Oh, and, and, okay. So they're looking you know, for expertise it, it's a, too. It's a complete myth that it takes less time to plan online than it does to call a travel agent. Well, and the thing about planning online, and not to turn this into a travel conversation, right. but this is a, this is absolutely a great example of this because here's this commodity, travel, you know, where anybody right. who's got access to the Internet can look at airfares, hotels, read reviews, you know, and right. certainly shop price. And so it's commoditized the travel industry. And, you know, the, but what this demonstrates is that whether you're young or old, there's still a place for someone who has – experience and advice and expertise to share and consequently that is the customer experience that in other words i can get um you know i can look at a low rate uh for a hotel room or a resort online but it's going to be that experienced travel agent who's going to say you know what we've had four customers come back from that resort in the last year and they didn't like the golf course at all or you know whatever and that's not you're you're not going to find that kind of insight or guidance on a website you're just not and right. so people will pay for, 
you know, good advice and, and, and good customer service. Right. Well, let's back up a little bit, and, and I'd really like for our listeners uh, that didn't have the benefit of either reading your first book or listening to the first show that we did uh, to really understand who you are. And, you know, I know that... Uh, I'm a woman a, of a, mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a 14-year-old daughter who, you know, thinks she knows what she wants to be when she grows up. And, and I have to be honest, when I was 14... You know, the only thing I was sure of was that I wanted to be a mom. Uh, but, you know, if you had asked me in detail, that would have looked like being a stay-at-home mom, which is like the furthest thing in the world from what I've become. Um, so, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? And, and how did you evolve to being an author and a world-class speaker who is who is just so incredibly in demand uh, right now? <laughs> Well, first of all, can I call you when I'm having a low self-esteem day and you can say all those nice <laughs> things about me? Hey, you now have them on tape, my dear. You can listen exactly, to them anytime exactly. you want. But yes, yeah. absolutely. Next time I feel like a loser, I'll just you know play this uh, interview back. Yeah. Um, no, when I was a kid, uh, you know, of course, what do you know when you're a kid? When I was a kid, I wanted to be an actress. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't a realistic dream, but I just, I, I loved, I guess I've always, you know, been a bit of a ham and uh, certainly not like microphone shy or stage shy or anything like that. And little did I know that, you know, I would end up on a stage. It's just that I'd be speaking rather than acting. But uh, right. so, you know, that was my aspiration when I was a kid. And then when I got into college, I fell in love with marketing because to me, marketing is the perfect, I mean, and that's what I majored in. But the reason I chose that as a major and really fell in love with that discipline is because to me, marketing is the perfect blend of business and psychology. Right. And I really love understanding why people do what they do and what makes them tick. But I didn't really want to listen to people's problems all day. I didn't really want to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I mean, that just right. seems like it would really bum you out, you know, at least to me. So I found, you know, I kind of stumbled into marketing. And I was like, wow, I can solve, help solve business problems for people and at the same time use these, you know, consumer insights or human insights about, why people do what they do or or why they don't do what you want them to do or you know what do you, how do you make them tick and so you know it's a persuasion business and uh so I fell into marketing or I should say I chose marketing and then you know went to work for advertising agencies and did that for 25 years major global ad agencies which is where I got you know really my experience honed and you know you take everything that you learn in college and you start applying it and blah 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 and then you know if anybody, if any of your listeners are in the advertising industry, uh, specifically the ad agency industry, I, you know I know that they'll understand this. There's a there's a saying in that industry that it's a 20 year industry. You get in in your 20s and you get out in your 40s because the burnout level is really high. You know you just you just can't do it anymore. You've had so many missed dinners with your family. You know you're at the mercy of your client. I think anyone who has a client is like that. I don't care if you're a lawyer and you have a client or you're an ad agency and you have a client, but anytime you have a client relationship like that, you do what the client needs you to do. So I can, you know, I can go to the work in the ad agency and think that I'm going to be home at five o'clock or six o'clock tonight. And then my client can drop a bombshell on me at four o'clock and say, we need these reports and we need them by eight in the morning and you got to do it, you know? So it's a lot of late nights and all that kind of stuff. So after 20 years, you know, you've, you've done really well in the industry, and people tend to get out. They, they're just burned out. And I was kind of in the same boat. I was, um, I was 41 years old, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And so I started thinking, well, what could I do that I could make a living at, and what are my gifts? You know, we all have natural gifts. What am I good at? What can also maybe provide a living for me? And I started thinking, like, every time 
I've had success or every time I've had a compliment from a client or every time I've hit a home run and you know you you know in business when you're having an on day or an off day you know when those moments are and for me when I thought about it it was like wow whenever I'm presenting information that my client doesn't understand or know about I always have a really good meeting and my clients always say you made me understand that and I've never understood that before or you know you explained it to me or whatever so I thought well I've got a gift for presenting and um, I just tried to figure out how I could translate that into making money. And I had never really thought about the professional speaking industry, but I'd spoken at some industry conferences for marketing, and I started doing that. And then, you know, one thing leads to another. You you know, the first year I was in business, I think I did 11 gigs. You know, it's just, that's nothing. But I did like 11 gigs and sort of, you know, eked together a living. And, uh but then what happens is people hear you at a conference and they start to refer you or, you know, someone right. says, wow, you know, you covered a really great topic at that conference. We'd, we'd like to have you back next year. Do you do anything on this topic or whatever? So, you know, long story short, I've been doing this now for 10 years and, and things are rolling along and um, it's really pretty much what I do. And then the books came along and now it's all I can do because I'm kind of like on the book tour. Right. Yeah, and I, I love it that you were named one of the top 26 hottest speakers. It makes you wonder, like, who was number 27 who, like, kind of well, fell off the edge? I will tell Yeah, exactly. But I will tell you that this is another thing that's kind of cool is I was on the list along with people like John Stewart. So that was really oh, cool. It's wow. like, oh, my gosh, I'm sharing the list with John Stewart because he's my hero. Well, very, very cool. I mean, one of the things I love is that you're you're a myth buster, a status quo buster, because traditional marketing, uh, you know, takes a look at, at diversity and race and age and gender and all of that other demographic right. stuff that you know uh, some companies get really, really wealthy on creating all. And of what we're taught—that's what we're taught in school. Yeah, if you right. Yeah. But you know, you talk about marketing to people's values and yep. and that you're reaching their heart, their mind, and their wallet. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's what we want to do. And, you know, my own industry, I, I got to tell you, you know, people are so in love with their own product that they have really completely forgotten about the customer. Um, mm-hmm. I've been on a crusade, uh, literally, and, and I have the scars to show it uh, <laughs> for the last few years, actually about six years. Um, the travel industry, you've got 15, 1.5% of people in this country fly when they travel. The other 85% drive. Yes. And our entire Really? Because it looks industry, to me like the airports are packed. <laughs> yeah. But our entire industry is focused on that 15%. And whether they're selling hotel rooms or cruise cabins or, or airline tickets, they're selling to the air traveler. And it's like, you know, how can you possibly miss this whole other audience? And and that's why this current book uh, that you're you're uh, going to be talking about today, which was, uh, you know, just published in November, mm-hmm. um, you know, really talks uh, very strongly to that audience I've been trying to get to, is that, you know, they've been marketing to people who look like them. When they go somewhere, they get on a plane. Well, yep. 85% don't. So why not market to them? I mean, it, right. so let, let's kind of start from the beginning, though, on the book. And, and as you know, I, I really like going through and just having you uh, walk us through the, the table of contents of the book. Because uh, for people who are listening to this, quite often they're in a car, so they can't sure. go online and, and browse as we're talking. And since we're on iTunes, um, you know, that, that happens more and more frequently. Sure. So let's start um, from the very beginning. And, and before we even get into into what chapter one is about, what is the definition of customer experience? I'm so glad you asked that because I deliberately did not 
want to use the word customer service because I find that's a very, very limiting term, and I think people have uh, preconceived ideas of what customer service is, and they tend to think, you know, an 800 call center staffed by a bunch of low-level or mid-level people who may or may not really have the clout to solve a problem, you know, and so I think when we think about customer service, that's a lot of what we think about is, oh, if you've got an issue or a customer complaint, call this 800 number and, you know, or send an email or whatever, and I believe that the customer experience is absolutely about the service that you get, but it's, it's, to your point earlier, it's completely all-encompassing and starts with awareness. I mean, it starts with marketing and, you know, how do I become aware of you in the first place, and then when I do become aware of you, what's my perception of you? You know, is it positive or negative? Is it upscale or downscale? Is it, you know, whatever it might be, luxurious or spare? You know, and we form impressions and we form, you know, intentions and considerations about brands, products, and services, and whether they're relevant to us. And it starts with that. And and you can even have a high opinion of a product or a service and still not want to consider it. So, for example, one of the things I talk about in the book is just because I have a high opinion about something doesn't mean that you can translate me to a customer. Personally, I have a high opinion of at-home espresso makers and cappuccino makers. I have a high opinion of those. I mean, the friends of mine that have them really enjoy them and use them a lot, but that does not mean that I would consider one for myself for number one, two reasons. Number one, I don't drink enough coffee to make it worth my while, and number two, I don't want to give up the counter space. You know, so something as simple as that can mean that just because I have a high opinion of a product or a category or a service or something doesn't necessarily mean that you can make me a customer. You know, or that or that I can you know move down that purchase funnel. So. The customer experience is, is, you know, starting with awareness and consideration and intention and then obviously moving to the purchase process. But the purchase process can be everything from what's it like to navigate your website online? You know, is it clunky or is it easy? Um, how, what are my payment options? Um, if I go to your store, is there anybody there who's actually knowledgeable and can really help me or are they just re- transactional and they're just ringing me up? Um, to your point about the the uh, travel industry, you know, that agent doesn't just make a sale. I mean, that's certainly the end of what their transaction is. But usually, to be successful in that business, you've got to really have broad expertise and really good, great, you know, travel insights. And you're not just someone who's selling a travel experience. You're an advisor. You know, you're a consultant, and you're and you're being paid for that expertise. So then there's that purchase experience, and then there's the ownership experience. You know, let's just say I did buy the espresso coffee maker. Well, even if the purchase experience was great, what if I get it home and it makes terrible coffee or it spews foam on my counter and I have to wipe it up every single time? I mean, those are things that... Or you're putting generic coffee in it and and it... Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, but what's that ownership experience like? And am I going to want to repurchase and become an advocate? And then, of course, you know, the very best part of a purchase funnel and the whole customer experience is the loyalty, the consumer advocacy you know, some call it brand ambassadors. I mean, you not only want someone to be loyal to your to your company, your brand, product, or service, but you want them to actually become rabid ambassadors. And, of course, the most, you know, overused but most apropos example of that would be anybody who's an Apple freak. You know, Apple doesn't right. just have people who that use their me. products. That, yeah, <laughs> that but, I mean, me. <laughs> they're Apple snobs. I mean, they'll tell they're, – they're evangelists. They are yeah. literally preaching, you know, the religion of Apple. And so – you know, they're not just, you know, people who are, are happy, satisfied customers. They're evangelists, and that's, of course, 
the ideal where you want to go. But that's what I mean by the whole customer experience. I mean, it's absolutely everything. And I think so many small business owners focus on what's our product and how are we going to price it competitively? And then, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts, like what are our hours or how accessible is it and do we have enough staff or whatever. But they don't really think about the subtleties of the customer experience. And sometimes the customer experience might be, how can you demonstrate that you get me and you get my life because I'm not like anyone else? Can I give you a quick right. example? Yes, absolutely. All right. I, know, I, just, I need to come up for air and stop talking and breathe and let you talk. <laughs> one quick example that a friend of mine gave me, and I ended up putting it in the book because it was just such a great example for people not like you, is um, a public storage warehouse kind of thing. You know what it is. I mean, you know, you've got too much stuff, you store it, right? Well, in the warehouse public storage business, apparently there have historically just been a few types of customers. There's the type of customer who has too much stuff, but they don't want to let it go, so they store it. And then there's more recently the type of customer who has been laid off or, you know, lost their home or whatever, and maybe they've had to move in with a relative or a parent or something like that, and so they are storing their stuff until they get back on their feet. Right. And in this particular town, it's a military town, there's a third type of customer, which is the military person who's been deployed, and they need to put all their stuff in storage, and so they do. So what the military person wants, if they're overseas, is ease and simplicity of their life. They've already got a lot going on, right? And they're doing combat, they're deployed, they're overseas. So what they want is payment on the first of the month to be automatically deducted and you know out of their checking account or whatever, and it's an automatic transaction. They don't have to think about it. They put their stuff in storage, they go, they're gone. Everything gets pa- paid. So that $60 a month that that person is pay- paying on the first of the month just happens seamlessly. Well, the person who's unemployed also is buying the exact same product, which is storage, right. from the exact same provider. But coming up with 60 bucks a month on the first of the month could be really hard for that person. It might be much easier for that individual, because they're unemployed, to come up with $15 a month every week and pay it four times a month. Well, this particular public storage place recognized that, and they have different payment options depending on what your needs are. To me, that was a great example of crafting a customer experience for someone who's not like you. Because if you're in the military, then let's give it to them in the easiest, best way that suits their military lifestyle. But if you're currently going through some financial hardships, how can we make it easy for you to still do business with us? And the end product is exactly the same. They're both putting their stuff in storage, and they're doing business with the same company. But the way that they pay is completely different, and i got to believe a very welcome welcome mat for the people who are in I mean, if you're unemployed, then you would be like, wow, they get me. They get the fact that it's going to be hard for me to write a check for 60 bucks, but I can write a check for 15 Every Friday. Absolutely. Um, I've got another one, uh, and actually I was in a, a Walgreens the other day uh, waiting for a prescription, and uh-huh. saw their little, uh, you know, they've got a little uh, display right next to the cash register, and they've got these six little boxes, and, and you know, it says, help, I have a headache, you know, help, uh, you know, my, my tummy hurts, uh, you know, and it goes through all these just very, very simple things, which is, you know, when you're going to the drugstore, that's really the problem you're trying to solve. And then if you stand in front of the painkillers, you know, you need a mind number from right. all of the different choices that you have. And so they Oh, it's overwhelming. Have, 
Yeah, so it, the customer experience of just the simplicity of I need to walk in and grab something and quite, uh, you know, obviously they have chosen the best product to put inside the box and I shouldn't right. even have to worry about that, right? And you don't and, have to go seek somebody out who may or may not even know the answer to that. Right, right, right. It's awesome. So I, I was just so uh, excited to, to have a very, very specific example of that. That's and, a fantastic you know, example. Yeah, and, you know, uh, again, I always come back to the travel industry just because that that's where I have, have lived for the last 35 years. Um, you know, but I think so often people are so in love with their product or service, and this is true of technology companies too, and I think this is where Apple has really broken through the clutter because – uh, and I don't know if you uh, watch any of the TED Talks, but uh, there's a guy named mm-hmm. Simon Sinek who wrote a book called Start With Why. And it really mm-hmm. dovetails very nicely with your message because unless you know why people want to buy what you right. have, it doesn't matter what the features are or the benefits or any right. of that other stuff. Right. And, um, you know, it occurred to me as I was looking at your book that people who are in the online world are automatically going to think that the customer experiences the online experience. But, you know, you mentioned it really has to tie in to who do you have in your store or who do you have at the hotel check-in counter or, you know, whatever uh, face-to-face experience people have. It has to be in sync. Yep. And, um, you know, and I've got an entire chapter on that that's called Your Employees Can Kill You. You know, your employees can kill your business unless they know how to provide a customer experience for people not like them. And and one of the, the more touching stories that I heard, because I, I, I gather these examples and, you know, um, anecdotes from real life. You know, I mean, people talk to me at speaking gigs. My friends talk to me, you know, my colleagues, my clients. Everybody's got a story just like you just told. And I was speaking for a group called Halloween Expo. And these are those temporary Halloween stores that pop up yeah. in, you know, September, October. and. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, it's a huge franchise. And i got to tell you, this is the other thing, too, is if you ever want to make any real money, quit your job and get a temporary Halloween store. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, serious. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking. anything. Well, it's amazing. I, I, number one, Halloween's getting to be a bigger business all the time. And apparently the fastest growing aspect of the Halloween business is costumes for pets. But, um, oh, but separately, you know, it's only a business that's open 90 days a year, and yet they make so much money in that 90 days. It's just, it's insane. I mean, it's not a sexy business, but my gosh, do they make money. So anyway, here I am at this corporate franchisee, you know, meeting, and I'm speaking on customer service, and I'm at Halloween Expo. And so they've got, you know, I don't know, 200 stores and 200 franchisees across the country, and I'm speaking about, you know, customer service. And at the break, I'm hobnobbing and talking to people, and this manager comes up to me and starts telling me about how great her employees are and how how critical it is to have employees who just get it. And I I really think this is also the kind of thing that's difficult to train for. You've got to almost hire the right kind of people who just get it, you know, and but she was talking about how one of her great people had a customer came in and this woman was very very large. She was just a very large overweight woman. Right. And she wanted to be Spider-Man for Christmas. So they have the Spider-Man outfit. You know, they've got it, right? So she goes into the dressing room and she tries it on. And as you can imagine, the Spider-Man outfit is not very forgiving and it looks, you know, it's extremely clingy and it, you know, it shows every little thing, even on the most perfect body, right? right? So here's this woman who's very large and of course it doesn't look all that great. So 
the associate is standing outside the dressing room and saying, you know, how's it going? And the woman comes out, and she said her face was just, she was just crestfallen. I mean, she could tell that she didn't look good. She knew she didn't look good. She was embarrassed about it, but she was crushed because she really wanted to be Spider-Man. And rather than saying, well, that costume's really tight on you or... (laughs) Or that costume doesn't look good. I mean, this woman also, you know, already felt self-conscious. It was obvious. Apparently, the the associate was very, very um, empathetic to this and and very diplomatic and said, you know, I got to tell you, the thing about the Spider-Man costume is it's a really uncomfortable costume to wear all night. You know, because it's so it's so tight. Have you thought about being a geisha? And the woman said, no, you know, tell me about that. And she said, well, the geisha costume is so much more comfortable. You said you're going to go to a party. Don't you want to be able to enjoy the party? Wouldn't you be more comfortable if you're not wearing this, like, rubber suit, you know? And she brings out the geisha outfit, which, of course, is a flowing robe, which certainly is more comfortable, but it's also more forgiving, you know, in appearance. And long story short, she ends up selling her the entire geisha outfit, which includes the wig, the chopsticks, you know, the shoes, the white face paint. And the sale was like three times what the Spider-Man sale would have been. But more importantly, she gave this woman her dignity. She gave her a solution. She gave her a solution, which is here's your costume for your party. But number two, you're going to have a costume that you're going to actually be more comfortable in, and it looks good. And she gave it all without ever having to go, wow, that looks terrible on you. (laughs) You She she never even brought up her weight. She was just like, she made it about comfort, not about appearance. And that, that way, that woman was able to save face. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the the other things that you you cover in the book because I I do want to uh, to entice people to buy it because I think it, it it just so aptly guides us through this maze of of rethinking uh, the status quo. Um, yeah. So you you start out uh, about how act the actual. Um, uh, act of tweaking the customer experience will actually produce growth just on its own. Right. Well, it, it'll produce growth five ways. I mean, it's it's just one of those sort of irrefutable, why would you not want to do this? And the five ways that tweaking the customer experience is the reason to do it. In other words, it's not just about being um, polite and it's not just about doing, you know, the nice thing. It's, it's, it's a solid business uh, approach too. And what, it can do by tweaking the customer experience for people not like you is it's number one going to bring in new customers the ones that you're not getting but there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to get them Um, and number two it can give you a significant competitive edge because I really believe that most companies and brands and organizations really aren't paying much attention to how do I provide a customer experience that's right for each and every type of customer and diverse customer groups so if diverse customer groups are being underserved and by that, I don't necessarily mean racial and ethnic diversity. I mean, I can mean that, but it could also be in the example of the military, you know, in the storage right. or the overweight woman at the Halloween store, you know. Um, I don't think that most organizations are paying attention to that kind of thing. So not only can you differentiate yourself that way, but you can scoop up the customers that your competitors aren't even acknowledging. And then, of course, it, you know, increases customer loyalty and it helps differentiate you from other businesses, because I think in this day and age, everything is being commoditized. Is that a word? Yeah. I mean, yes. But you know, you can you can pretty much buy almost anything cheaper online, you know, somewhere. And 
So if you're trying to compete on price, that's a pretty vulnerable place to be. And, you know, additionally, technology has not just made the access easier. It's made the products themselves more alike, right? I mean, you know, Apple might have been the first one that came out with, like, that type of intuitive smartphone, but now everybody has one. They're not, I mean, they're still the creme de la creme, but it's not like they're the only type of platform out there, you know. So all these different choices mean that if stuff is relatively the same and everything pretty much kind of costs the same and I can get it online, well, then how do I differentiate myself? Um, and you're in the travel industry. You, I mean, that's that's really important to the travel industry. Right. Um, and then I think, you know, the final reason it's a good business decision is because it gives you a greater understanding of different customer groups. And once you understand your customers, you can serve them better, you know, forever. And and who doesn't want to know who their customers are inside and out? So I think those are, you know, five strong reasons why it makes sense from a business standpoint, aside from being like the, you know, quote unquote, politically correct thing to do or the, you know, goodwill thing to do. It's, it's, it's a really good platform to start with and growing your business. Right, right. And different customers care about different things, you know. I mean, I always use the example of banking because everybody makes money. So everybody needs a bank or a credit union because we have to have some place to put that money that we make. So everyone has a relationship. Well, you know, a lot of banking services or or products are pretty much all the same. You know, everybody has a checking account that they offer. Every bank has a, a savings account and this and that. All that stuff's pretty much the same. It's the way that people want to work with that bank that's different. My 76-year-old mother is going to want a customer experience that's very different than what a 26-year-old wants from a bank. You know, my 76-year-old mother doesn't even have a smart smartphone, and if she did, she would not be comfortable making a mobile deposit because she wouldn't trust that it went through. She likes that paper receipt. She wants to go into the bank and talk with the teller, Betty the teller, who she's known for years, you know, and chit-chat and make a deposit and get that paper receipt that makes her feel like it's in there, you know, and and she's going to go home and file that. You know, and it's all very old school, but that's where my mom's comfort level is. But a 26-year-old would be like, why do I need to go into a bank at all? You know, the, the, exactly. the, the end product is the same, but the way that they're accessing it is very different. Right, right. And so both are valid. Yeah. So let's talk about what technology has done to this whole thing. So, you know, technology, the chapter two is actually technology armed consumers with mighty big bullets. Yeah. Well, I mean, the bottom line is in the, in the past, if you had a good or a bad customer experience, you know, decades ago, you – we're pretty much confined to sharing that experience, positive or negative, with your circle of friends, you know, and associates. I mean, you tell your neighbors or your friends or whatever, you'd make a recommendation or or not, you know. But these days, people have voices. I mean, they don't just have opinions. They have voices. So if I have a bad experience with a brand or a company, I don't just tell my circle of friends. I can also tell my 19,000 Twitter followers and my you know, vast circle of people on LinkedIn and Facebook and, you know, Pinterest and, you know, Instagram. And, I mean, you know, we've got we've got clout as consumers that we've never had before. Right. And, you know, it can take your business down. I mean, it really can. I mean, and there's just a million examples of social media backlash, you know, when companies do dumb, stupid, or bad things, people will not put up with it. And... It can drive your business decisions. So, you know, that's what I mean by the 
technology's armed people with mighty big bullets is they can shoot you down if they don't like you, you know? <laughs> exactly. And I and I always use the example of Twitter. You know, if Twitter can take down a country, don't you think it can take down your business, you know? Yeah. So No, absolutely. And it's and so, and it's now the fastest form of communication in the world, too. It's not like this has to, you know, take a while to get out. Mm-hmm. So the next chapter is about the purchase funnel, and I, I know a lot of people have written about it, and you know there are various diagrams that that are published. So what's different about your approach to the purchase funnel, and how the customer experience overlays that? Well, I, I, first, I, think, I guess I'd like to explain the purchase funnel for your listeners who might not know what that is. I mean, it's a common uh, a common diagram in, in marketing textbooks and stuff like that. But if someone's listening and, and they haven't seen it, I just want to explain what the purchase funnel is. is imagine a funnel, you know, literally just like a funnel, um, where it's wider at the top and narrower at the bottom. And the reason it's wider at the top is because every stage of the funnel, people drop out. So there's fewer people who will actually buy your product than people who are aware of your product, you know. And so at every stage of the funnel, you're dealing with a smaller group of people. And obviously, the objective is to funnel as many people into the top of the funnel as possible and keep as many of the people moving through the funnel. And, you know, the, so the top of the funnel is awareness and the bottom of the funnel is, is what I call consumer advocacy, you know. And, and, and my purchase funnel is really no different than anybody else's, although mine does include loyalty and advocacy, whereas a lot of purchase funnels will stop at, you know, the bottom part of the funnel is the purchase. So in other words, they talk about how, how do you get someone from being aware of your product to considering your product and forming an opinion about it to intending to buy it and then buying it? My funnel, you know, example does all of that too, but I really think that part of the consumer experience these days isn't just, again, the purchase. That's not where the, the process ends. It's about that ownership experience, which is either going to translate to loyalty or not, and then ultimately advocacy. Because if I admire your haircut or your highlights, you know, and I say, wow, you've got beautiful hair. Who does your hair? And you just go on and on and on about the person at your salon who does your hair. If that's not a recommendation, that's, again, evangelism. You know, that's right. advocacy. And we all want that. And that's, that's worth more than any marketing dollar can ever do for you. Because we trust what people say. And we also, going back to the technology thing, we even trust what strangers say online. Right. I mean, we yeah. certainly trust our friends and our family, but we even trust, I mean, think why would there be, you know, services, uh, review services like Yelp if we didn't trust what even strangers say? Right. Well, and, you so know, that, it's, it's really funny to me how, how that whole user-generated feedback uh, genre evolved and how they started out just getting the user-generated feedback. And again, with my travel industry background, you know, someone will come in and say, oh, this is an awesome hotel. Well, you don't know that they were there with their soccer team. And that, you know, a good hotel means, yeah, we were drinking and partying all night. All night long and the manager didn't kick us out, yeah. Absolutely, and that's what constitutes a good good hotel. Or the pictures, you know. It's like anybody can take a good picture of anything. So what I always want to know is what's not in the picture. I mean, is this a lovely (laughs) villa in Italy and there's a cement plant next to it, you know, that you didn't show me, you know. (laughs) Uh, A a hog shack, you know, and I'm going to smell manure, you know, the whole time. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Right. So, you know, really finding out, uh, uh, to your point of, you know, who who's the audience and who are you really after? And, and you know, even user-generated feedback, if it's not tied to who it came from or under what circumstances. Because I'm many kinds of travelers. 
you know, I am not just one, and, and my industry has had a single set of preferences. Well, I travel quite differently when it's my husband and, and myself right. or when right. when my 12- and 14-year-old are along or we yep. have to take grandma with us, um, you know, and, and so big, big differences, yet industry hasn't tweaked their way of even, I mean, I think CRM is a great example. CRM, to me, is complete and total bunk because it only looks at you in one set of circumstances. Right. I completely agree with you. Everything that you're saying, I completely agree with. And and you're right. I mean, somebody tra- who travels does not necessarily travel the same way when it's their leisure experience than when their business experience. You know, your business experience, your your criteria might be, I want to be close to the airport. I want to be close to my meeting. I just want free Wi-Fi, you know, et cetera. And then right. when you're traveling on your own nickel, maybe it's like the last thing I want is a cookie-cutter Hotel. I want a boutique experience. I want, you know, whatever. All of that's valid. And and that's just it. I mean, all of that's valid. You know, you can't just say, here's, people need what they need, Chicky. And so needs are never wrong. If your customers need to have their hand held, like my 76-year-old mother, and she wants to be chatted up, well, then that's what she needs, to feel like she's welcome in your business and you can't dismiss that and go well we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so many so many businesses have and and uh, you know it's just amazing how things uh have evolved and again people not paying attention to the changes around them I think is you know really at the crux of this whole issue. So uh we've already talked quite a bit about that we're not one size fits all anymore mm-hmm. which is chapter 4. So let, let's move to the, the real core of, of what your message is, both in the last book and this one, is how do you think like people who aren't like you? You know, I think it's it's one of those scary propositions where people go, well, okay, I don't know what it's like to be, you know, a mom who homeschools their kid, or I don't know what it's like to be in the military, or I don't know what it's like to be 80 years old, or, you know. So h- how in the world am I supposed to craft a customer experience that's going to put the welcome mat out for someone who's not like me? But I don't think it's that scary or difficult or, frankly, even that complex. When you think about how the largest companies in the world do consumer research to find out what is in the heads and hearts of their prospects, at the end of the day, it all comes down to talking to people, whether it's in a focus group or whether it's on a survey, in a survey or whatever. At the end of the day, all they're doing is really talking to people. And I think even if you're a small business owner and you don't have a quote-unquote research budget, you can still learn a lot by talking to people and finding out what they want because most of us are very, very happy to give our opinion. It's just that nobody ever asks, All right? you know? <laughs> and so when you start reaching out to new groups of people, you're going to be amazed at what you're going to find, the reception, first of all, that people are going to say, oh, I'd love to talk to you about that. I mean, um, even Disney does it. I mean, Disney is, you know, one of the the largest, you know, entities that there is out there, and I think they do so much very, very, very well. They have a panel of moms, and because moms are going to make decisions, for example, let's say about how their entertainment dollars are going to be spent for the, you know, with the right. family budget. Well, they don't want to just presume that they know what moms want or need. They decided that they would get together a panel of moms and and ask them. And I think that there's a, a tremendous amount to be gained by just talking to people. And there's a couple ways you can do that. One is you can listen online. You know, you can just go to chat rooms and get onto, you know, blogs and any, you know, conversations online where people are talking about stuff 
and you can join in or listen passively and just see what people are saying. What are their complaints about? You know, what are their hot buttons? What do they wish that somebody would do? What do they rant about? You can learn so much from people's complaints, but also what they are wishing that the experience had been like instead. Then you can take it a step further and you can actually start, you know, putting some social media context out there, some blogs, whatever, and engaging people and saying, would this be something you'd be interested in? You know, we're thinking about, I'm making this up, expanding our hours, you know, to 8 o'clock in the summer. Is that something that would be helpful or not? You know, or we're thinking about adding gluten-free foods to our menu. You know, do you, what do you think about, you know, whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be anything that complex, but just actually engaging people. And then I think there's another level, which is to get involved in the community that you want to target. Um, and, and you do that by talking to them and finding out what the barriers are. So a quick example that I use in the book is there's a, a bank in the Midwest that was um, sir, th- th- that is around a large meatpacking plant. And the meatpacking plant employs a lot of immigrants. And one of the largest immigrant groups that they employ is from Sudan. So they had this huge Sudanese population. And the bank was smart enough to go, wow, even though these people aren't bank customers and they don't necessarily even have a checking account or a savings account with us, they still get paid every week. And we want to start cashing their checks, their payroll checks, because if we can cash their payroll checks, at some point we can start to have a relationship with them and grow them into a checking account or a savings account, blah, 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 blah. So they sent their mobile check cashing truck, because they have one of those, out to the plant every single Friday and did free check cashing for anybody who wants their check cashed. Well, that would be a no-brainer, you would think. The problem was they weren't getting people to cash their checks, and they couldn't figure out why. Well, as it turns out, there's this guy in, who's a worker at the plant, a Sudanese guy, and he's one of these sort of de facto leaders of the group. I mean, he has no official title, chicky or capacity, but you know how like you can observe any group of people and you can always see who's the leader, you know, right. who's the... Who's the opinion leader? You know, who's the who's the big guy? Well, this guy was clearly like the guy. Everybody like went to him for advice and he was just sort of the guy. So the the woman who ran the mobile check cashing saw this and she just observed that he was like the guy and she sat down with him and she was like, How come we're offering this service and none of your people, none of your community, none of your workers are taking advantage of this? There's no cost to them, you know, why wouldn't they want to do this? And he explained to her that in Sudan Women are not only not in the workforce, they're, they're, they're full-time wives and homemakers. That's the cultural role that women play in Sudan. But furthermore, they sure as heck don't handle money. So she was a woman. The woman who ran the mobile check cashing was a woman. And he was like, they're not going to do business with you because you're a woman. You have no business handling their money. So that's a huge cultural chasm. And I mean, that's not, that's not anything that marketing can overcome. You can't market your way out of that. So what they ended up doing was asking for a meeting, a formal meeting with that guy, who, again, is nothing more than just sort of the opinion leader of the group, and sat down with them and said, we understand and respect your culture, and we want to help you. But in this culture, women do work, and women do work in financial services, and we do handle money. So what we want to do is respect your culture, but we want you to learn about ours too. We want to to do the mobile check caching, and from now on we're going to bring Melissa out there, who is the woman who is always in charge of it, but we're also going to bring Robert. So if any of your employees, any of your people or whatever, workers, are more comfortable dealing with a guy, they have that option. And I thought that was a great way to handle that because they didn't just strip Melissa out of the role. She, She didn't do anything wrong. She was doing a good job. 
Right. So they didn't just strip her out of the role and go, oh, we don't need you anymore. You're a woman. We're going to put a guy out there and be sexist about it. They, right. they, they, they kind of bridged, you know, they kind of like almost extended the olive branch and said, meet us halfway. You know, we'll, we'll conform to your cultural standards for those people who really want that, but you have to conform to ours too if we're going to work together. And I thought that was a great example of, you know, not only working together to, to, to build a customer base or whatever, but also understanding what the customer barrier was where they would have never understood that if they hadn't just asked. All they did was ask. It was a conversation. It didn't cost a thing. Right. They just asked. But it's not the kind of thing where a guy's going to walk up to the mobile check cashing and go, by the way, we have a problem with the fact that you're a woman. You know? yeah. I mean, yeah. that's never just going to come only. up. If, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if they had not asked, they would have never known that. And they would have continued to try to market and market and market and market to the Sudanese culture, never understanding that that wasn't going to fix the problem. Right. Very interesting. So I think that those types of things are open to to anybody. And I think, you know, another example would be, Talking to your frontline employees. You know, if you've got employees who are on the front line talking to your customers, then harvest the knowledge that they have because they hear everything. They hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. They may not bring those issues to you, but I, but trust me, they're hearing them, you know. Right. So, you know, let's go back to the travel industry. I mean, I would be talking to the front desk person if I own a, a hotel or any kind of a travel agency or anything, anybody, you know, who's dealing with customers. And I would sit down with them once a week and say, what are you hearing? What do people like the most? What do they complain about? What are the little things that stick in there? I mean, it might be a little service fee or something. You never know. But I always say I'm not afraid of the problems I know about. I'm afraid of the ones I don't know about. And if you're a business owner, you can't be in all aspects of the business. You've got to trust that your employees you know, are talking to people. And I, I promise you that they're hearing stuff. They, they just may not be bringing it to you. And they may not be bringing it to you because you don't ask. And I think just sometimes if you sit down with your employees and go, what are you hearing? I want to know good, bad, or ugly. What do people like? What do they not like? What do they complain about? What do they praise? Your employees have a wealth of information that costs you nothing to get. Well, and I'll tell you, and uh, I, I have mixed emotions about this because I'm kind of right in the middle of it, but I'm I'm running a one of the major hotel-only websites. It's a, mm-hmm. an online travel agency. And... Uh, about a year and a half ago, I got contacted by the local Better Business Bureau saying, well, you know, we've got a couple of complaints here, and, you know, you might want to think about becoming accredited. And and so uh, long story short, we did become accredited, and then all of a sudden the complaints started growing, right, because we had to have their logo on our site. And right, now all of a sudden could, that's an access point, yeah. <laughs> right, and, and I had committed and, and, you know, still do it to this day, uh, every single Better Business Bureau complaint I handle personally. Right. And, you know, that has been such an amazing learning experience. And we actually outsource our customer service to Expedia. So, you know, I work with the Expedia and Hotels.com uh, folks because they actually run our call center for us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, try to help them understand. And then, you know, I've, I've got an investor uh, who, who actually, um, you know, I'm, I'm having to serve him as my customer, uh, in, in essence. And, and I'll come back with customer service changes I, I would like to make. And he'll he'll say, well, you know what, if I do that, it's going to impact conversion. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so if we have to do a couple of refunds, you know, now and again, um, you know, it's, it's uh, worth it to us to just do that, you know, if somebody's unhappy. So, you know, there, there's a fine line. Uh, you know, I mean, I always err on the customer side because, I, you know, like you, I believe that there's real value in, in focusing on the customer throughout the entire experience process. Well, Kelly, I just noticed what time it is, and it always flies by with me. <laughs> but I think we're going to have to have 
uh, our executive producer, Patty, uh, schedule another time because we are not even up to Chapter 6 in a 13-chapter book. Oh, right. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate so that. Much, you know, and I don't want to just skim through it because there, there's so much meat there. Um, you know, the other things that you talk about are social media, um, the whole role that the employee plays, the seven principles for creating a customer experience for people not like you, matures, boomers, Gen X, etc., women and families, Hispanics and Latinos, and serving different racial and ethnic communities as well as the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender communities. So uh, if, if we can do that and just wrap up here. Uh, yeah, I'd love it. I would love that too because I, I don't want to miss that, and I know our listeners are, are going to be fascinated uh, to hear the rest. So stay tuned, uh, <laughs> as I like to say in my blog at the end of every blog. Um, we will get that scheduled, and it will probably be uh, later in February or early uh, the following month because I'm headed off next week to Poland for a couple of weeks. Nice. We're not, we're not going to have shows. Well, it's not vacation. My uh, my 14-year-old daughter and I are going on a mission trip. So, but still, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, nice and cold. Uh, but, yeah, definitely nice. And uh, I, we're really looking forward to it. So we're taking a two-week hiatus uh, from the show. Good but, for you. Uh, I will definitely have Patty give you a call. And, Kelly, it has just been delightful. I mean, Well, I, thank I'm you. I so appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> it did fly by. I, I looked at the clock, too, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I've been talking forever. <laughs> well, I hope you didn't have a 1 o'clock conference call that you needed nope. to be on. <laughs> All right, well, let's wrap this up. Uh, let me just let folks know that the book title that we have been talking about is Crafting the Customer Experience for People Not Like You. The author is Kelly McDonald. Uh, for our Executive Girlfriends Group members, that is available on our Executive Girlfriends Group book site, and it's also available widely uh, through just about any channel you want to buy this book through. That's right. Uh, so, uh, Kelly McDonald. Kelly, uh, just one more thing. Why don't you tell people the easiest way to get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, the if easiest way to get in to touch come, with me. Come speak or, or if they yeah. consult with you. Easiest way is probably email just because I spend half my time in the air, it seems. So I will uh, I will give my phone number out and my email, but that's probably the best way. Email is Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at mcdonaldmarketing.com, and that's all spelled out, just M-C-D-O-N-A-L-D, marketing.com. Uh, my cell number is 214-929-7700, and my website address is www.mcdonaldmarketing.com. Wonderful, and I'm assuming if they go to your website, they can figure out how to follow you on social media. So Yeah, Twitter is at Kelly C. McDonald. Okay, great. And then all the other platforms are there as well. Well, Kelly, I look forward to uh, wrapping up this discussion uh, in a few weeks. And uh, to all of you who have been listening, thank you so much. If you want more information about the Executive Girlfriends Group, go to www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. Thanks so much. Kelly, have a marvelous weekend. You too. Thanks so much. Thanks.